three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. This is Nuclear Knowledge. Production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Welcome to another episode of Nuclear Knowledge, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. I'm your host, Wally Clark, and the views expressed here are my own. We're nearly finished reviewing the nuclear weapon effects categorized into the acronym BOSTERD, which stands for BLAST overpressure, shock, thermal, electromagnetics, radiation, and dust. Today, we'll explore radiation, in particular, residual radiation. As initial radiation is defined as the radiation emitted within the first minute after the detonation, residual radiation is defined as radiation emitted more than one minute after the detonation. In a nuclear airburst, Residual radiation will come mainly from weapon debris. If the explosion is on or near the surface, the soil, water, and other materials in the vicinity will be sucked upward by the rising cloud, causing early local and delayed worldwide fallout. Fallout is the radioactive material lofted into the upper atmosphere following a nuclear burst so-called because it falls out of the sky after the explosion and the shock wave have passed. Early fallout settles to the ground during the first 24 hours. It may contaminate large areas and be an immediate and extreme biological hazard. Delayed fallout arrives after the first day, consists of microscopic particles, that are dispersed by prevailing winds and settle in low concentrations over possibly extensive portions of Earth. Please recall Nuclear Knowledge Episode 22 podcast on surviving blast, shock, and fallout by staying in a fallout shelter. A person may survive the initial fallout in said shelter, but the residual fallout may harm them in the weeks and months to come. The yield and altitude of the explosion determines the amount and spread of fallout. Fallout may become part of clouds that can fall back as black rain. A rain darkened by soot and other particulates fell within 30 to 40 minutes of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The radioactive dust usually contains fission products. Recall that fission is the splitting of an atom into two or more smaller nuclei, plus a few neutrons, possibly a gamma, and a large amount of heat and kinetic energy. All of these can then affect other nuclei. So you see, the radioactivity of the first atom is reduced as it transmits energy. Other atoms can capture the particles and energy and may see their radioactivity increase. Fallout comes in two varieties. The first is a small amount of carcinogenic material with a long half-life. The second, depending on the height of detonation, is a large quantity of radioactive dust and debris with a short half-life. Both types of radiation can cause injury and death. Due to half-life, the effects of radiation are reduced over time. 
The half-life of the radiation is dependent on the energy level and atomic mass of each radioactive atom. The decay time for each type of atom is unique. Consider radioactive cobalt-60, which has a half-life of 5.26 years. Starting with a sample of 8 grams, after 5.26 years, only 4 grams of the cobalt-60 would remain and would emit only half as much radiation. The other half will have decayed into stable nickel-60. After another interval of 5.26 years, the sample would contain only 2 grams of cobalt-60. Neither the volume nor the mass of the original sample visibly decreases as the radioactivity is reduced. There are over 300 different particles. Start this sentence again. There are over 300 different products that may result from a fission-fusion reaction. Many of these are radioactive with widely differing half-lives. Some half-lives are very short, on the order of fractions of a second, while a few are long enough that the materials can be a hazard for months or years. Their principal mode of decay is by the emission of beta particles and gamma radiation. Now, I don't wish to minimize any of the negative aspects of a nuclear weapon detonation. But after a detonation, the Earth will not be destroyed, the target zone will not be uninhabitable for thousands of years, and all life will not be destroyed for hundreds of miles around. Between the United States, the USSR, the UK, France, China, India, Pakistan, and North Korea, some 2,121 weapons have been detonated, with an estimated total yield of 540,000 849 kilotons. Only two bombs have ever been exploded in anger, both by the United States over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The Japanese returned just three months after Little Boy over Hiroshima and Fat Man over Nagasaki were detonated. Both cities recovered within a few years, and each is a thriving metropolis today. Little Boy and Fat Man produced residual radiation but it was not locally long-lasting. The weapons were detonated more than 500 meters in altitude so as to maximize the effects similar to a conventional explosion, that is, to maximize the blast, shock, and overpressure. This limited surface contamination, as most of the radioactive debris was carried off in the mushroom cloud instead of being embedded in and mixed with surface material. There was plenty of lethal fallout in the form of ashes of death and black rain, but it was spread over a fairly wide area. Also, most of the radioactive material had a short half-life, from moments to minutes. The bomb sites were intensely radioactive for the first few hours after the explosion, but thereafter the danger diminished rapidly. American scientists sweeping Hiroshima with Geiger counters a month after the explosion to see if the area was safe for occupation troops found a devastated city, but little radioactivity. Water lilies blackened by the blast had already begun to grow again, suggesting that whatever radioactivity there had been immediately following the blast had quickly dissipated. A civilian Japanese rumor 
held that Hiroshima and Nagasaki would be uninhabitable for 70 to 75 years due to residual radiation. So the American military leaders, seeking to calm an apprehensive world, said that A-bombs really weren't so bad. The leaders concentrated on the blast, shock, and overpressure effects while downplaying the radioactive effects of the weapons. Unfortunately, they were wrong. Although residual radiation was a relatively minor threat, many of those who survived the blasts had already absorbed the initial radiation doses that would eventually kill or cripple them. Radiation deaths began a week after the bombings and peaked three or four weeks later. People with few apparent injuries would suddenly develop ghastly symptoms, including hair loss, purple skin blotches, and bloody discharge, then die soon after. The U.S. military estimated that 103,000 people were killed by those two bombs, 36,000 dying a day or more after the bombings. Radiation deaths subsided after seven or eight weeks, but latent effects continued to appear. Fetuses irradiated in the womb were subject to high doses of miscarriage, stillbirth, and birth defects. Many children were retarded or had unusually small heads, stunted growth, or other afflictions. Cases of leukemia surged two years following the bombings and peaked in the late 1950s. There were cancers, blood disorders, cataracts, heavy scarring, and male sterility. However, no genetic damage was detected in children conceived after the blasts. Oddly enough, notwithstanding all the calamities visited on the Japanese by the bombs, two things everybody now expects to happen in a nuclear war, mutant kids and the land glowing blue forevermore, did not occur. Even though the weapons detonated over Japan were relatively clean, due to neutron bombardment, the effects lingered for years as radiation induced into the soil, building material, and other debris. Around the world, there have been some 540 atmospheric nuclear detonations, lofting approximately 2.8 tons of plutonium-239 into the environment allowing it to travel around the world and fall out everywhere, including Antarctica. Antarctic ice cores prove the existence of plutonium deposition. FYI, plutonium-239 has a half-life of 24,110 years. So, the initial radiation has major deleterious effects on humans and other life within range of the radiation. Then the residual radiation continues to decay and affect for decades and possibly centuries at great distances from the location of the detonation. Finally, any atmospheric nuclear detonation is initially local, but residually planet-wide. So a lesson for anyone thinking about deterrence, they should consider that detonating a nuclear weapon against an enemy will immediately affect the enemy but will ultimately also affect them. Said another way, the effects of a nuclear weapon are not strictly local. Thank you for listening to today's Nuclear Knowledge Show. I hope you learned something new and valuable about deterrence. Nuclear Knowledge is a production of NIDS, a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this broadcast. 
Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. This podcast is produced weekly, and each episode is released on Monday. If you enjoy this show, check out our other podcast, The Nuclear View. You can catch it and all our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com. I thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear knowledge. A production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies.